Years ago, when Lindley and I first were married, we took a trip up to my hometown, Amarillo. And we'd been married maybe a year or so, a little over a year. Lindley was actually pregnant with our first child. And we decided we would go to the mall there in Amarillo. My mom worked at the mall at Dillard's. And uh, so we thought we'd just go up there, hang out a little bit. And while we were there, we decided we would get some ice cream. You know, malls have the food courts, and generally in the food courts, there's some kind of ice cream place. And so we, we thought we'd go to there and order some ice cream. And so we walked up to the counter. We were, we were two of many people there in front of the counter wanting to order ice cream. And so there's a lot of activity in the mall, a lot of people in there looking to order ice cream. We're looking at the at the, the board there that's got the menu, and we're trying to figure out what we want. And, and Lindley and I are, are pretty much not standing out. We're just one of several other ice cream shoppers. We blend in. We fit in the crowd. We're just one of many who are interested in ice cream. You know the feel. You're sitting there waiting to order your ice cream. And then Lindley notices on the counter that there are some ice cream cups And she thinks in that moment that these ice cream cups are showing you what it looks like if you order a small cup of ice cream, you order a medium cup of ice cream, you you have these samples, these fake samples of ice cream that show you what you can expect if you order a particular size. And so she's sitting there looking at that, thinking that that display looks so real. It's almost as if it's real ice cream and she's just mesmerized by it and so she walks up to the counter thinking that this cannot really be real it looks so real it has to be a display and she takes her finger and she sticks it into the display much to her horror her finger sinks into the ice cream at that moment we no longer were hidden in the crowd of ice cream shoppers She stood out significantly, a circle formed around her as a lady whose ice cream she stuck her finger into began to yell at Lindley and yell at the worker at the ice cream store saying, this woman right here just stuck her finger in my ice cream. And uh, it was quite a moment. It was Really interesting, I, you know, not having been married long, I found it easy at that moment to kind of begin to step away and say, I'm not sure who this woman is. And uh, it was an embarrassing moment for her. And it was really sad because she felt this embarrassment and this shame of having done something she didn't mean to do. But here's the crazy thing was she was deceived. She thought that the ice cream on the counter was just a display fake. And then to her horror, she discovered in a very embarrassing way her deceit. And all of a sudden, all the other judgmental ice cream shoppers pointed out her deceit to her shame. We can laugh about it today, but I promise you that day we did not laugh about it. I tell you that story because all of us can relate to the feeling of embarrassment and shame. And nobody likes that feeling. And I've got great news for you today. 
God doesn't want any of us to experience the ultimate shame of deceit. That is great news. I want us to read about that in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 26 through 28. Great news. God does not want any of us to experience the ultimate shame of deceit. 1 John chapter 2 verse 26. These things I wrote to you about those who are trying to deceive you. And you, the anointing which you received from him remains in you and you do not have need for anyone to teach you. But just as his anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, also he taught you remain in him. And now children remain in him. So that when he appears, we might have boldness or confidence. And we might not have shame before him at his coming. So John writes to the church in hopes that they would not be deceived. And there were people who were formerly a part of the church who have now left the church who were referenced in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the defectors. He's saying, I'm writing you because there are people among you who have been trying to deceive you. The first level of deception that he's writing about here is don't be deceived into believing that those who were once with us, who are now not with us, that their claim to be Christians is an authentic claim. Because if they were really with us, they would not have left us. That's chapter 2, verse 19. He says don't be deceived about their claim because their claim is not valid because they don't abide in the word of God. They don't abide in the truth of God. They're not abiding in Christ. They're not staying in the church. They left. So don't be deceived to think that their claim is valid. He's also telling them don't be deceived by those who have defected in their claim, accepting it as a valid Because you might actually be deceived about your own claim. You see, if the people receiving this letter from John look at those who have claimed to be Christians, who left the church, who left abiding in Christ, who left abiding in the Word, that they are not really those who abide in Christ. If they looked at them and said, you know what, they say they're Christians... And so they must be Christians. 
If you look at their claim and you accept it as valid, even though the scripture is very clear that to be a Christian means you abide in Christ. Even though the scripture says that, someone who's not abiding in Christ, we're just going to accept their claim because that's what they say. He's saying if you do that, then there is a chance that you will be deceived about your own claim. That, That you can be a Christian and do whatever you really want to do and be okay. Think about what it's like in your life, your everyday circles. If you were to go up and ask somebody, are you a Christian? Well, there's a lot of people in your circles that would likely say, yes, I'm a Christian. But what would the person you ask really mean when he or she says, yes, I'm a Christian? Would, would he mean that he grew up in a home where mom and dad said we're Christians? But that's all that really went on? Mom and dad just said we're a Christian family. That's what we are. And there was, there was no church. There was no Bible reading. There was no real understanding of what it means to be a Christian. He just grew up in a home where they said they were Christians. Is that, is that what he means? When you ask if he's a Christian, does he mean we, we go to church on Christmas and Easter, maybe a few Sundays in between, but largely it's not really a part of our life. But we, we believe in God. We believe in Jesus, but really we only go to church every once in a while. It's not a big deal for us. Is that what he would mean? Maybe you just mean I, I, I'm a believer in God and and, and that's pretty much all I mean. I'm in, I'm in America, and that's what we believe. We believe in God, and we're a Christian nation, but I never go to church. I never give a penny to the church. I, I never read my Bible. I only pray if, if I'm really in trouble. Is that, is that what he means? If, if we accept the claim that someone is a Christian, But that person's life does not square up with what God describes as a Christian in the Bible, then it just might mean that we will begin to believe that we can be Christians and define that any way we want. And that is a deception that God wants us all to avoid. And so God has given us an anointing. Look look again at verse 27. And the anointing which you received from him. So God has given you who have trusted in Jesus Christ an anointing. And that anointing abides in you. It lives with you. This anointing is with you. And you don't have need for anyone to teach you. Nothing in your life is more significant in teaching you exactly what you need to know, when you need to know it, how you need to know it, in any circumstance. And the teaching of this anointing is true. It's not a lie. 
Everything that comes from the anointing of God in teaching you in every circumstance in which you live is absolutely true. It's exactly what you need, when you need it, how you need it. It's true. What is this anointing? This is such great news. This anointing that abides in you, that is with you to teach you the truth, is the Holy Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, we can read about how the Holy Spirit of God would rest upon the prophets or the leaders, occasionally some of the judges, some of the craftsmen even that were building the temple in which God would dwell and lead his people. Some of them had the Spirit of God resting on them for that purpose. But largely it was very isolated to a small number of people. And God's people altogether did not experience the presence of God's Spirit dwelling in them. The Old Testament was isolated to just a few people having the Spirit of God. But the few people that exhibited the presence of the Spirit of God in their lives were pointing towards something that was coming later. In fact, Moses... Back in Numbers chapter 11, Moses says, I would love it if all of God's people were prophets and the Spirit of God was upon them. He was pointing towards something that was coming when Jesus Christ arrived on the earth. God in the flesh, displaying who God is so that we could see him and know him. When Jesus came, a man named John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who was heralding the way of the Messiah. John the Baptist showed up and John the Baptist began to say about Jesus, he said, you know, I'm here baptizing with water, trying to prepare the way so your hearts are right, but here's one that's coming. Jesus Christ, who's gonna baptize you in the Holy Spirit. It was a day coming when Jesus Christ would send the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, on all people who believed in Jesus. And then Acts chapter 2 gets here, Pentecost. You know what Pentecost was? It was a gathering of all of God's people from across the region at the temple of God to celebrate the harvest of grain. This was a prescribed festival by God for his people to celebrate his provision in their life. They come together to celebrate the grain harvest. People from all over the region, people who spoke different languages in their regions, and they all came together. And at that Pentecost, Peter and the apostles stood up before the people, and Peter and the apostles began to proclaim the gospel, and the Spirit of God fell on them. And the Spirit of God falling on the apostles resulted in the apostles speaking the heart language of the people who had gathered from all the regions so that every Every person there heard the gospel in their heart language, the language they spoke every day back home. They heard the gospel so clearly in their language that thousands of them decided to follow Christ. Do you know that's not the big deal of Pentecost? The fact that the Spirit of God fell on the apostles and they spoke in the language of those who gathered, that's not the big deal of Pentecost. The big deal of celebrating the grain harvest was that when thousands of people believed in Jesus Christ, every single one of them received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
this had never happened before. Never before in the history of God's interaction with his people did God pour out his spirit on every single person that believed. But now this is the new pattern of the New Testament. So that when anybody places their faith in Jesus Christ, they receive the gift of the dwelling, the indwelling of the Spirit of God. So that now, wherever I go, wherever I am, the Spirit of God, God himself, his presence is with me. You know why this is is why Jesus said to people that were following him, it's better for me to go away. I'm sure that they were wondering, wait a minute, Jesus, I don't think that's a good idea. I like you being here. But Jesus says, no, it's better for me to go away because I'm going to send to you a helper. When Jesus left, he says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's a promise that he made. Now, how is it that Jesus could keep that promise to everybody who believes in him? Because he went away in physical form and he sent his spirit in spiritual form be with everybody who believes in a personal, relational way. So that there's never a moment in your life as a follower of Christ when you do not have the presence of God with you. If Jesus had stayed, we'd be limited to being around God by the physical presence of Jesus. Jesus left and we have no limitation. Every single one of us who's placed our faith in Christ has the abiding presence of the Spirit of God. Now, the New Testament describes a lot of different things the Spirit of God does in our lives as followers of Jesus. I would encourage you to read those things in the New Testament. Be encouraged by what the Spirit of God is doing, what He is actively doing in your life. But there is none more important than what's described right here in 1 John chapter 2. The anointing teaches you so significantly, verse 27, that you don't need anyone to teach you. There is no more significant teacher in your life than the Spirit of God. All the pressure's off me. You know what I do? I just get up here and I try to open the word of God to you so you can see it and understand it because the spirit of God is with you and the spirit of God is teaching you. And if I just open up the word of God so you can see it and understand it, the spirit of God is the one who teaches you. And you think I'm good. (laughs) Not me. I'm not a great teacher. I'm just creating an on-ramp for the greatest teacher of all to tap into your heart with what God says so that you are moved to follow him. The Spirit of God is with you. And he's teaching you in such a significant way that you don't need any other more significant teacher than the Spirit of God. And everything the Spirit of God is teaching you regarding everything in your life is true. 
That means that every circumstance, every situation, every unknown event, every crisis, everything you walk into, he is there teaching you in the right time, in the right way, so that you might understand what he wants you to know. And you know what he wants you to know? It's right here. This is, this is what he's teaching you. This is the most significant work of the Spirit of God. There is no greater work of the Spirit of God than the one described right here in 1 John chapter 2. He is teaching you to stay in Jesus. You want to know what the greatest work of the Spirit of God is? The greatest work of the Spirit of God is God indwelling those who've called out to Him in faith through Jesus Christ had been indwelt by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is convincing you day after day after day in any and every circumstance to stay in Christ, to keep on confessing your sin. To keep on trusting him for repentance and change of life. In other words, you keep on following the Lord saying, I want to leave sin behind more and more in my life. Whatever sin you bring up in my life this week, I want to confess it to you. And I want to leave it behind. And I'm going to keep leaving it behind. I'm going to keep on striving to love God more and more. I'm going to keep on striving to love people more and more. I want to keep on striving to help others do the same more and more. And I want to spend the rest of my life doing that and the spirit of God is in you every day in every circumstance instructing your heart and mind to stay in Christ he's with you he doesn't want you to defect he doesn't want you to get deceived he wants you to abide in him he wants you to stay in him because he wants you. Verse 28. When he appears, when Jesus comes again, to have confidence and not shame at his appearing. It's really our only two options. Shame or confidence. When I think about the appearing of Jesus Christ in all his glory and his holiness, that he knows everything, and by his coming will expose every deed and intent of the heart, and will judge in righteousness. It doesn't take me long to realize that if all of my attitudes and my actions are laid bare before God, that I will feel shame. I'm going to be embarrassed. Some of it may be because I never really meant to do that. And they ended up doing it anyway. Some of it may be Stuff that I did, knowing full well I was doing. And when Jesus Christ appears in an unapproachable light and he lays my life bare, I can relate a whole lot more with standing before Jesus Christ ashamed 
and embarrassed that I can relate standing before Jesus Christ, confident, ready to tell him why I'm ready for him to take me home. And I'm not talking about the big stuff. I mean, the big stuff's hard enough, but you talk about the little stuff. And when's the last time that we shared our faith? When's the last time we did something that we felt like this is sacrificial faith right here? And it's forcing me to trust the Lord like I've not trusted him a long time. I mean, who here feels like they've prayed enough? I mean, if a preacher really wants to get guilt going in your life, just say, hey, how long have you been praying lately? Well, that'll get us all, right? I mean, when Christ appears, who's going to feel like anybody did enough? Shame. But I'm so glad that's not what God wants for us. God does not want you, in his appearing, to feel shame. And fear. Years ago when I was at Southside as the pastor there, I was late one night working in the office and the lights were all out. I was fixing to leave. I turned everything out. I was fixing to leave the building. And it was all locked up. And as you walk out the entryway to the building, there was a video surveillance camera that would show the front porch in that area out there in front of the church. And so as I was walking out of the main office, I looked up at the surveillance camera. All the lights are off, all the doors are locked. And on the surveillance camera, I saw our youth pastor coming to the front door. And I thought to myself, hmm, he has no idea I'm here. This could be interesting. And so I sat there debating with myself, should I stay in here and step behind this bookshelf? Or should I let him know I'm here? And I thought... Well, that's a no-brainer. I'm going to step behind the bookshelf. I'm going to make sure that he finds out I'm here in the most enjoyable way. And so I step behind the bookshelf. It's completely dark. He thinks no one's there. He walks into the main office, and I step out from behind that bookshelf, and I'm just right there in his face, and he completely melted with fear. I mean, shrinking back was exactly what he did, and I didn't feel bad at all. <laughs> it was a glorious moment, you know. And uh, now, Carl was his name. He's a fun guy to scare. I found myself wanting to do that frequently. And, and now, Carl, if, if he had known, he should have known, if he had known I was there, and he walked in the office, he would not have shrunk back in fear, right? But he didn't know. So the key issue was what he knew or what he didn't know. And what he didn't know resulted in fear. But had he known the right thing, he'd have walked right in there. And he'd looked at me and just said, you're such an idiot, and walked right on by, you know. That's what would have happened. Okay, we know our sinfulness. When you walk in here every Sunday, I don't have to work hard to convince you that you've messed up the week before. Because we all walk in here knowing that. I mean, we start talking about the holiness of God, you can begin to feel your shortcomings. 
And I promise you this, when Christ appears, your shortcomings will be clear. But that's not all we know. The Spirit of Christ is with you so that you are instructed to stay in Christ so that what you know is Jesus. So I know my shame and my guilt and the fear that sin would create in me, but the Spirit of God is instructing me not that I am sinfully, shamefully, guilt-wise ridden with all kinds of embarrassment. That's not the Spirit of God's doing in me. The Spirit of God is not instructing me that I should be embarrassed before God. The Spirit of God is instructing me that I should stay in Christ because it's knowing Christ that frees me from the guilt and shame of my sin. And the Spirit of God is dwelling in me to instruct me to stay in Christ every single day of my life, in every circumstance, in every situation, so that by staying in Christ, I know Him, and He is the one who cleanses me from all my sin. He is the one that meets me in my confession. He is the one that leads me in my repentance. He is the one who says to me, I don't care how inadequate you feel, I am ready to help you step forward in my grace. I want you to know me so that when I appear and you stand before me in all my glory, your knowledge of me is so fresh in your heart because you paid attention to my spirit that you will be confident that you can say to me, I belong to you. That's what the Spirit of God's doing in your life. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've not been abiding in Christ, you've not been staying in Christ and spending time cultivating an abiding relationship with Christ, abiding doesn't happen whimsically. It happens with time that you've given to the Word of God and to prayer and to confession and to repentance and hanging with people who say, I'm paying attention to the Spirit of God in my life. That's what it means to stay in Christ. That's Christianity, staying in Christ all the days of my life under the tutelage of the Spirit of God because God wants me to be confident that I know Him. If, if you've not been staying in Christ, if you've not been abiding in Him, then one of two things is going on. One, you're not a believer. No matter what you've claimed, no matter what you've said, if, you, if your life is not characterized by abiding in Christ, do not be deceived that your claim is genuine. Now, if you're not a Christian, you've never made a decision to follow Christ, or you've not been abiding in Christ to the degree that you think, there's no way I'm a believer. I've never abided in Christ. The Spirit of God is not dwelling in you. But here's great news for you. Though the Spirit of God is not indwelling in you, according to the scripture in John chapter 16, the Spirit of God is 
working in your life so that you'd recognize you do not believe in Jesus Christ and you would place your faith in him. So the spirit of God is working, knocking at the door of your heart, convincing you you need to trust in Jesus. And the moment you decide to trust in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God rushes into your life and sets up his home in your life so that from the day you trust Christ to the day you go home to be with the Lord, he is instructing you to stay in Jesus. And if you are a Christian and you made a decision to follow Christ one day in your past and for the last season you've not been abiding in Christ, the Spirit of God is instructing you to return to Jesus. Don't ignore the Spirit of God. This last week, some guys were headed out on a trip together, and we, we were uh, going on this men's ministry trip, and we had these walkie-talkies to be able to talk in between vehicles because we were in that middle of nowhere where there's no cell service. And so we wanted to be able to tell each other when we had to take a break or get off or when the turn was coming, whatever. You ever use those walkie-talkies and had a moment where you're trying to get with somebody and there's a lot of interference on a particular channel, what is it that you do? You just change channels until you find a channel where there's no interference and then you can talk to each other. The Spirit of God has been teaching you whether you've been listening or not. This passage does not say he's only teaching you when you're paying attention. No, he's with you and he is always teaching you to stay in Jesus. So if you're in a time in your life you've got a little interference going on, it's time to change channels. And get your life in a place where you can hear him clearly. If you've not been hanging out with people who are paying attention to the spirit of God's teaching in their heart, start getting around some people who are paying attention to that teaching. Now, I've been spending time in the word of prayer. Change the channel. Get where you can hear the spirit because he wants you to make it. If you've been abiding, then abide more. If you've been remaining and staying in Christ, you keep it up and you help others do the same. A friend of mine serving in Turkey several years ago communicated to me that one of his buddies, his language teacher, that actually lived there in Turkey, was a believer in Jesus Christ, formerly a, a Muslim. And one day when he was leaving a meeting where they'd been talking about following Christ, some people in his community grabbed him and they beat him and left him on the ground unconscious. When he came to, they kept telling him, are you going to turn back to Islam and are you going to denounce Jesus? And he said that he just kept on saying, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And every time he said, Jesus is Lord, they beat him even more. One guy grabbed him, put a knife to his throat and said, if you do not denounce Jesus Christ, I'm going to kill you. And that young man refused to denounce Jesus Christ. They didn't kill him. And he stayed in Jesus. That same spirit that's in that young man in Turkey is in you. And there's not a moment of your life where the Spirit of God is not ready to teach you how to stay in Christ.
listen to the Spirit of God.